0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking today at uh, verses 10 through 13. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. Just as a a note of clarity, I originally intended on preaching Philippians uh, chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. And it's not as if, like, I just gave up and said, you know, I think I'll go with 13. <laughs> uh, I studied the entire passage and was prepared to preach the entire passage. But noticing the importance in, in praying over these particular verses, I see much shepherding opportunity for us here today, and so have decided to slow down and look at these uh, four verses in particular. And then uh, we'll finish up hopefully, our study of Philippians next week. Philippians 4. Let's read these uh, familiar uh, verses, beginning at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Movie uh, musicals are a tried and true genre in the film world, and they're often known for gaining massive popularity, major awards, and Michael Gracie's double platinum winning The Greatest Showman is no exception. The acting throughout is fair, I think I would say, the music is fantastic, in one of its most powerful and haunting and beautiful ballads, a uh, opera singer uh, captures the sentiment of the main character, P.T. Barnum, and his heart for more, his aspirations, this ever-ambitious character. It plays as she sings and keeps zeroing in on his face, communicating to all involved that this is his heart, this is what he wants. And I think that in this little line, what we see is not just a window into the heart of Barnum, but a window into the heart of our modern world. The lyrics go, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough. As one of the writers of that particular song explains, he says, as you listen to the moving refrain, it is as if you could imagine someone in a castle trying to count all their riches, and it still doesn't add up to enough. It's that kind of moment where somebody really isn't satisfied. You know, when we do seek satisfaction through fame and fortune and things, indeed, the question is, is it true that it could never be enough? An article in the Atlantic Magazine a few years ago revealed how Uh, much has changed in our world over the last 100 years. It shows the progression of people thinking that if they could only have this one thing, that life would finally be good, and yet we find that when the next thing came, still the heart was not satisfied. It's interesting. The things that people once considered to be the, the epitome of convenience and wealth and status are now just considered absolute necessities. In the year 1900, for example, 90% of our country's households did not have electricity, a stove, or a telephone. 1915, 90% of the families in our country did not own an automobile. 1930, 90% did not own a refrigerator or a washing machine. In 1945, 90% did not have air conditioning in their homes, even in Florida. In 1960, 90% didn't own a, wash, a dishwasher or a color TV. In 1975, 90% didn't own a microwave. And in 1990, 90% of the people in our country didn't own a cell phone or have access to the Internet. <laughs> and how in the world did people survive without a refrigerator or the Internet? <laughs> the article went on to write, Today, at least 90% of our country has electricity, a stove, a washing machine, an automobile, color TVs, air conditioning, dishwashers, internet, and cell phones, and yet we still know that, and this is his words, it isn't enough. It isn't enough. It's astounding the pace at which things move from luxury to necessity one put it, a a cell phone, internet access, a laptop, gluten-free, organic, (laughs) airfare, discount fashion, even Netflix, are now considered essentials. You know, the truth is, we really can never get enough when it comes to these things. One author put it this way, and I think it captures this moment well. He says, the economic health of our country, in fact, depends upon a cultivation of discontent. (laughs) It's what makes America move. The fact that you and I can't be satisfied. And so I'd ask, as as you see this and you evaluate it broadly in the context of like our entire country, let's personalized for a moment with just three simple questions. Do you see it around you? Yeah, no doubt. But do you feel it within you? Do you feel it within you? Is it really ever enough? According to the scriptures, this problem that we have didn't begin with us. It's not an American phenomenon. It is a human one. It began back in the garden. God created all things good and pleasant and perfect. It was as it was intended to be, as good as it gets, to use the popular phrase. And yet Satan would come along and uh, convince those residing in the garden in that day that they really didn't have enough. They needed something extra. They needed something more. Though God had abundantly provided They didn't have it all, and therefore they plunged themselves into a life of finding satisfaction apart from God and what he himself has given. What was it that had seduced them into this this rebellion and this unbelief? Simply put, they wanted more. They wanted more. And Satan, who didn't have enough either, (laughs) came along and convinced them of this and so Paul, knowing that this is the background in which we all live, not just Americans, not just those of us who live in the 21st century, but knowing that this is everyone, will actually come along in this very personal letter to his beloved friends, and he's, he's nearing the end of his ministry, and he's going to address head on this subject of contentment, of satisfaction, of actually having enough. And it happens in the context of just a personal interchange. The reason why, for example, I wanted originally to try to preach verses 10 through 20 is because they're all like one thought. Paul here is primarily just trying to let them know that he received the gifts, the material gifts that, that he needed, or put that in quotes, that he needed And he wanted to thank them for it. And so, three different ways in these few verses, he's going to tell them, Thank you. I appreciate what you did. This was nice of you. But buried in that is so interesting. He's going to try to be careful to explain to them that even though they met his needs after a prolonged absence, he actually doesn't need anything. Follow that for a moment. Even though the gifts that they had met his needs, he wants them to to know that in the end, even if they didn't send a dime, he didn't need anything. And we see that here where he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I know both how to have a lot and how to have nothing. Nothing. And clearly he is breaking off from the main idea because he wants them to understand and embrace the same reality. He wants them to be initiated into the same secret. This is more of a personal testimony. I I want to follow it as such, but we'll get to the point. What then is the secret of satisfaction? How can we really have enough? Enough. Maybe the three ways, the, the three steps that we can plot this little argument of Paul's is noticing his situation, and then his definition, he's going to define this contentment, and then his satisfaction, he's going to show how he gets there. So everything's going to lead up to the end, but you need to follow his argument. I want you to see it in the way that Paul presents it. First of all, Paul familiarizes us with his situation in verse 10. Notice it again in your scriptures. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Now, what we see here is that that Paul is actually writing to them and saying, Hey, I am in good spirits in the Lord because you guys have begun caring for me again. He's expressing this need that he had for, like, direct and personal provision. You say, uh, was he just needy? I mean, we know of other instances in which Paul just works a job and makes his own money on the side. Now, Why couldn't he do that now? Well, let's familiarize ourselves once more with where Paul was. He's in prison, and I know that we as Americans think that uh, the prison system is rather kind to people in giving them cable television and a workout room and three square meals a day and a bed. Uh, This is not America, this is Rome. And what takes place in a Roman prison system is a far cry from what we see today. In fact, you were in jail in that particular culture at your own expense. (laughs) So Paul here, don't get the right picture please, he's not like rotting away in a dungeon pit somewhere, he's more than likely actually under house arrest, chained to a guard, but he gets four walls and a roof and no more. Anything and everything else would have to be supplied to him by his friends or family, wherever they may be. And so he finds himself in this position of not actually being able to work and provide for himself like he normally could because he has to stay within the confines of these walls. And if he starves before his hearing or his sentencing, too bad. That's not Rome's problem, that's Paul's problem. Which means that it's everybody else's problem that loves Paul. (laughs) that they want to see him succeed. And the Philippians, when you look historically, especially reading the book of 2 Corinthians, you find out like, they've been his go-to. I mean, there have been moments, again, where Paul like, plies his trade as a tip maker, he makes his own money, he pays his way. And he did that in cultures where there was this like, popular understanding of rhetoricians, guys that speak getting paid good money, and he didn't want anybody to not listen to him because they thought he was just in it for the money. So you know what he said? I'm going to forgo my right to get paid anything, and I'm just going to work a side job so that you guys can't argue anything with me. But that wasn't the standard way that Paul did it. Most of the time, you know what he wanted to do? He didn't want to split his time 50-50 between making tents and making disciples. He'd rather just go 100% on making disciples. And do you know who actually helped that happen? The church at Antioch were the ones who sent him, but all we know of in reading the New Testament is that it is the church at Philippi who comes to bat the most often to provide for him in times of need. He's going to talk about this a little later, and so they've been historical supporters of him. So I want you to imagine like a missionary that you love and care for, somebody maybe that you've had a deep relationship with in times past, and you're like, yeah, we want to keep this person going. Maybe it's a church that you grew up in that had a missionary couple that was beloved They had been his go-to. And notice what he says here. He says, clearly like you guys have started supporting me again after some kind of prolonged absence. Something had happened in which they were no longer able to take care of him. And the text doesn't say exactly what. But I want you to feel what's going on here for a moment. I think I know what happened. It's the exigencies of the ancient world. There is no PayPal There is no bank account to which they can wire things. There is no find my friends feature on his iPhone. I mean, like, they cannot keep track of Paul unless he is writing to them, telling them where he is and how they can help him. And where has he been the last couple years? He's been in custody. He was arrested in Jerusalem, taken on a a crazy voyage across the Mediterranean to Rome, thrown in jail more than likely, they simply lost contact with him, and when he could probably have used the financial help the most, he couldn't get it. He couldn't get it. And so somehow, some way, in God's kindness, they found him. They found him. And, and Philippians is based on this guy, Epaphroditus, from the Philippian church, who actually goes with financial gifts from Philippi, and this is what Paul is acknowledging. He says, I am so thankful to the Lord... He doesn't really thank them. He says, I'm so happy in the Lord that you guys have revived your concern for me again, that you've been able to support me in this work again. Because Paul is still doing the work. Even though he's under house arrest, he is writing letters to churches, he is witnessing to Roman guards, Uh, the people from the church in Rome are obviously coming to him and being edified by his teaching as well. He has a little bit of latitude, a little bit of liberty, and so he's still getting the job done and they're able to revive their concern again. It's a beautiful word in the Greek language. It literally means to bloom again, to bloom again, like, like a flower. <laughs> he, he saw this as like the, their, their care and love for him has once again blossomed. And he is grateful for this. But notice, like, because the relationship's so, so close, they're not just financial partners, they're friends. Notice how he tries to comfort them, though, in light of the fact that they couldn't physically care for him for a time. Notice what he says at the second half of verse 10. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. (laughs) Like, what, what kind of guy does this? That is so, like, he's the one that suffered financially because of whatever had happened. And you know what he's more concerned about? He's concerned about them. He thinks that they may feel bad, that they weren't allowed to care for him in practical, tangible ways. And you know what he's trying to assure them? It's okay. You didn't have an opportunity. There was no way that you could have gotten me any money. I, I want you to know that even if I don't get the material support that most people would think that I need, air quotes again, to live, it's going to be okay. It's fine. We're good, but, but thank you. I'm glad that you've sent the money again. So that's the situation. I mean, the material support that Paul needs actually is a matter of life or death, He not only needs food to live, water to drink, uh, but he also needs supplies for writing letters, (laughs) communicating with other people. We know that in other epistles, for example, he'll ask for his books, (laughs) for people to bring his books so that he could study. He'll ask for his cloak uh, because it gets kind of cold sometimes. You need that. He needs just normal, basic supplies. And he says, look, I know I didn't have it. You guys were able to care for me again listen, it's okay because even if I don't have the material things that we think that we need for ministry, it's fine. I'm content. So that's the situation. He's rejoicing in the Lord greatly, even though he had substantially lacked what he needed. But now let's look at the definition of then contentment. So the situation of contentment was really hard. It was physically demanding on him. And yet the definition in verses 11 and 12 will blow you away. Notice what he says of himself, even though he had gone substantively without what he, quote unquote, needed. Not that I am speaking... Of being in need. Notice that. You've met my needs, essentially, but I don't really need anything, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now just pause there for a moment. This is mind-blowing language. He's saying, even in those times when I didn't have that which you would have thought I needed, I was totally fine. He says, I've learned. This is the word that's normally associated with discipleship. Like, through the school of hard knocks, I've learned uh, to be content. The word uh, content would have been a popular one in that day, especially in philosophical circles. There was this uh, idea that had been floating around for a few hundred years called stoicism. Stoicism. It was a popular mindset, just like we have popular religions today, so also Stoicism taught that basically man through uh, mental rigor could disassociate himself from any highs or lows. You, You ever talk about somebody being Stoic? It's like they never respond to anything. We still use the phrase that way. For them, for the the Stoic, they were actually supposed to be the one, their their, their main goal in life was to achieve what the text here translates as contentment. (laughs) They wanted to be fully satisfied with the reality of a harsh life. They weren't like positive thinking people at all. Basically, the way Stoicism works is that you just need to lean in and acknowledge that life stinks. And the sooner that you can acknowledge and, and embrace that life stinks, you won't be disappointed. That sounds like some people I know. That may be the philosophy that they live by. It's certainly not a biblical one, but what they were trying to help people do, as hard and harsh as it sounds, is they wanted people to be settled. They wanted people to have peace, what we would call peace. They wanted people to have contentment. It was a popular move. And so uh, Paul here is saying, look, I have learned the secret to contentment. There may be popular ideas out there today about like how to achieve this, but I know how to receive it. And, and basically, he's saying, and look, it never, this contentment never banked upon material things ever. He's, he's basically saying the sine qua non of my existence is not the earthly, the things that you can touch, the things that you can see, the things that you can taste. Uh, Seneca, one of the most popular uh, Stoics of that day, you would know him well from history. He says that the happy man is content with his present lot no matter what it is and is reconciled to his circumstances. So how would the Stoic then teach this commitment? Well, it's to look inward, look to the self. Just know that you have everything you need to deal with the harsh realities of this life. Now, if I were to like, say that in a modern context, apart from Stoicism, you know like what I would hear? The Disney Channel. <laughs> it sounds like the Disney Channel. You know what? You're totally cool. Everything's fine. You've got what you need within you. You just deal with whatever comes. You follow your heart, and then you can be happy. You can have contentment. You can be satisfied. This is still around today, but what I want you to note is that Paul actually was satisfied. And he actually was content, and he could handle any kind of situation, but it wasn't because of his self-sufficiency. He didn't turn inward to have this level of peace. Paul would deal with the lowest of lows and yet be content. Notice it again in the text. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever situation. I know how to be brought low, that means to be humbled, to be shamed. He talks about in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. He knew what it was to actually starve, abundance and need. I mean when you read through the, the testimony of Paul, I mean here, here's a guy who like says in First Corinthians chapter four, for example, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. We have become and are still the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. And yet he says, I am content. I am content. In 2 uh, in Corinthians chapter 4, he says it this way. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And that, Paul says, I'm content. I'm content. Second Corinthians 6, he says, But as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way, but by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, Hunger and I'm content. And just one more little highlight from the life of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 11. By the way, I've been content. I've been content. Paul had learned to experience contentment in the extremes of deprivation from hunger to homelessness to being in rags uh, to, to beatings to labor to exhaustion to intense humiliation. And for him, I mean, whatever this secret is, it's pretty powerful. He knew how to handle the lowest of lows. But I want you to note how in the text, that whatever this contentment was that he had not only taught him to be content in the lowest of lows, but listen to this, also in the highest of highs. In the highest of highs. So, Justin, I don't think that's a problem. Is it? (laughs) Paul did know abundance. You know, people often wondered that. You can read the other stuff about Paul, and you, you would think, man, this guy... You know, he's just always had a hard life. He had not always had a hard life. He was a rather successful uh, religious leader at one point who probably knew great material wealth. He would be the equivalent, I think, in our own day of a, a tenured professor at a Division I school. It's a comfortable life. He knew abundance. He had resources. He would lose them. But even after he had lost them, guess what? He would at times get them back. I mean, one example of this is just with the church at Philippi itself. He, he had a good time there. Now, he would eventually get thrown into prison and beaten up. But like it started off rather comfortably as he was cared for by the wealthy Lydia and hosted in her home. It even says in the text later on that that Paul knew what it was to have more than he needed from them. Like he would show up, listen to this, he would show up to certain cities and he would have an abundance of cash and resources because he was so well supplied by the Philippian church and other patrons that had followed him. It wasn't that Paul was always going hand to mouth, that was seasons, but he's saying even in this text, he's saying... Look, like, even though I'm sitting in a prison cell right now, I am well supplied. I have more than I need. <laughs> so he knew times of abundance as well. His contentment could handle abundance. And, but the, the question is, for us friends, is like, okay, do we really need contentment and abundance? Of course we do. John Calvin said it this way. He who knows how to use present abundance soberly and temperately with thanksgiving, prepared to part with everything whenever it may please the Lord, giving also a share to his brother according to his ability and is also not puffed up. That man has learned to excel and abound. This is an excellent and rare virtue and much greater than the endurance of poverty. Friends, uh, wealth, abundance brings with it its own challenges. And can I just like go ahead and like dispel any discomfort that may be about this topic Uh, since we are, are living in like the top second percentile of the world that would include almost everyone in this room. If you want to talk about abundance just from like the global level, uh, don't just look down to Port Royal and think, oh, those people, they're going to really struggle with abundance. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If you've ever had to have a yard sale or go on a diet, you know abundance. Thank you. I'm glad you recognize that. <laughs> in fact, uh, some of the most godly uh, individuals through the years have always recognized the unique challenge of this. I came across this hymn several years ago. We we don't sing it, but I love the words. It was written in the mid-1800s, and it's a prayer. It's a prayer for deliverance, a prayer for rescue, right? And, and I, the, the first verse just talks about Jesus being the source of this rescue, and then, as all old hymns do, it has several verses, and it just kind of keeps going and going. And so in in the next verse, it it mentions something that we need to be delivered from. Nature's blindness, the power of sin, deliver us from malice and unkindness, deliver us from the pride that lurks within. And everybody singing along is like, amen, yes, I need to be delivered from indwelling sin. And then he adds another one. Uh, Deliver us from the depth of, excuse me, when temptation sorely presses in the day of Satan's power, in our times of deep distresses, in each dark and trying hour. So these are external things. Lord, deliver us. Lord, we need your help. Jesus, rescue. Now notice what he sings about in verse 3. When the world around us smiling, in the time of wealth and ease, Earthly joys our hearts beguiling in the day of health and peace deliver us. Rescue me, Jesus. Protect me in that very moment. How wise. It seems to come straight from uh, the information provided for us in the book of Proverbs. You may remember this in chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. Wisdom straight from one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. He said, if you could pray it, pray anything. Lord, don't give me poverty, don't give me riches, teach me to be satisfied with what you have provided. So Paul says, this contentment that I have not only helps out in poverty, it helps out in plenty. Not only in famine, but in feast. And and it would lead you to like kind of wonder at this point, okay, well what is How do you have that? Because I think all of us can know, whether we've been on one end of the spectrum or the other, what it's like to want more, (laughs) to not have enough. And then Paul finally discloses the secret. And I love the way that he does it because when you notice there at the end of verse uh, 12, he says, In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty of hunger and abundance and need. That, that word secret is, is a word that was popularly used for like initiation into like a secret religion of the time. They had these like, uh, initiation ceremonies, and he's saying, Look, I know the initiation. I know how to get in on the secret of contentment. I know uh, that, this, that the secret handshake, if you will, the way into this exclusive club of being able to enjoy Jesus in abundance or in emptiness And he finally discloses it in verse 13. Please keep the context in mind as we read it. It's hard to do this, I know, with popular verses. He says, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's a secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What are the all things here? Come on, think with me contextually. What are the all things here? Is Paul talking about his next football game? Is he talking about his next job interview? Is he talking about his, his SAT? Is he talking about his retirement portfolio? No, Paul is talking about whatever situation I find myself in, I can handle it because of Christ who is strengthening me. The object of, of, of his concern here is our hearts in times of abundance or emptiness. And he's saying, whether I have a lot or whether I have close to nothing, I have everything because I have Christ. I have Christ. I have one who is in me and he is constantly uh, strengthening me. He is helping me. Uh, he is the one that ultimately provides for me. He is the secret to contentment, seeing that all of my satisfaction ultimately comes from Christ. I can handle it in any way, shape, or form. It is good. Things are well. It isn't about for Paul the money. He's not worried about the finances. What he's telling the Philippians, I want you to catch it in its original context, he's saying, look, guys, even if you have some other season in which you can't give to me, it's going to be okay because I have what I need in Christ. And he wants them to have the same. I don't want to hit on this too hard, and I, I really do appreciate um the way that this verse has gotten so much traction in our culture over the years. I, I would never uh, object uh, to someone like our own beloved Tim Tebow, football hero from the state of Florida. I can say that because I'm from here now. I used to not like him, but now I'm like, i am live. You know, putting the 413 on, on his eyelids, and uh, then so many young people trying to like, aspire to do the same Having confidence in Christ for whatever the battle is ahead, that's awesome. I I have no problem with that. But I am very concerned, though, about what that does for our hearts when we start to misapply this because we start thinking, oh, Philippians 4.13, this means I win every game, I pass every test, I get every job, whatever. And then we're like, what happened? Ironically, the verse that was supposed to make us content makes us unsatisfied because, like, we misapplied it. And actually, what Paul is saying is it, don't, it not only helps you when you win the football game, but when you lose. It not only helps you when you get the job, but when you don't. It not only helps you when you secure the relationship, but when it's broken. It not only helps you in health, but in harm. Christ is still your energy. He is still your source of joy no matter what may be going on. Highest highs, lowest lows. This is the secret of contentment. Paul here is practicing, friends, what he preached, you keep hearing him say, rejoice in the Lord always, rejoice in the Lord always, and everybody could like protest, oh, that's so pie in the sky, that's so pious, he doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't. St. Paul doesn't know uh, what you and I are going through. I mean, have you ever considered the fact that his presidential candidate didn't even get to run for the Roman election? He not only had to deal with an abundance of foolish executive orders, but he had to deal with an emperor who ran the entire empire by executive fiat, one who was explicitly committed to exterminating anyone who was perceived as a threat to his authority, including this Jesus of Nazareth. Paul isn't just looking, by the way, at at increased tax burdens, but he literally has no income. He has no means of providing for himself. He is chained to a Roman uh, a guard. I mean, you think that you have a tough financial quarter ahead. I mean, he is looking at beheading at the hands of an empire, and yet he says, hey guys, it's all cool. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. That's actually, by the way, literally how the verse is translated. In him who strengthens me. Because I am in him who provides me the strength which I need to face any and every circumstances, it's all cool. So Christ, Christ is Paul's bread, not his bank account. Christ is Paul's wealth, not water or supplies. Christ finds real satisfaction in him. And so then I understand why the Rolling Stones, for example, can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) They're looking in the wrong place. True satisfaction only comes in knowing that we have a relationship with with the risen Lord Jesus. You know, I I think um, even within pop culture, sometimes uh, people they they stumble across truth like a broken clock that's right twice a day. They just, sometimes they just accidentally get stuff right. <laughs> and as I think about this this passage. And and like how Paul plays it out. It reminds me of even that that opening song that I referenced to you about uh, never having enough. The, The verses will indeed just over and over again keep talking about never having enough. But what's so interesting is that it's qualified. There's only one verse in the entire song. And the reason why the author says that they never have enough is because it is without You, without this individual, I would never have enough. Now I think we all know in here that even the individual will one day be a disappointment in some way, shape, or form. Even if they do serve us well, life is short, it is temporary. But I like the accidental notion that the, the, the possessions won't get the job done. It is the person. It is the relationship. And what does Paul clue us in on here? We have already the relationship that matters. Like we have already a, like a true connection. We are in Him who strengthens us. We've been included into a right relationship with Him. See, the good news about Jesus and the gospel isn't only like about satisfaction. It is satisfying. See, you, we were created to enjoy relationship with God. And when our rebellion had broken that against Him, not only were we distant, like, oh, me and God aren't on the same page, He was actually against us. His wrath burned brightly against our rebellion to the degree that he would have been willing to send us to hell forever. It is not just like, oh, we're not on speaking terms. No, it was bad, friends. You were enemies of God. I was an enemy of God before this. And yet now, because of Christ, and this is what Paul is leaning in on, I am in him. I have a relationship with God because Christ has included me in himself. He's obeyed in all the ways that I couldn't. He has endured God's wrath on the cross for my sin. He has given eternal life as evidence through his resurrection. Everyone who believes in him and turns from their sin will enjoy this relationship with him forever. He is actually happy about that. Even though at times he's not sure if he's going to be able to eat or if somebody is actually going to literally beat him up. And so, friends, we are called here for, for this culture, this climate, what, this stuff that we deal with, or whether it's scarcity that we deal with, to find once more our satisfaction in Christ. And if you have never done that, maybe it's because you don't yet understand the, the depth of your problem with God. <laughs> You you see other needs. You see other insufficiencies. And yet what the Scriptures are telling you to accept by faith is no, your greatest problem isn't stuff, it's sin. And Jesus is the one who fixes that through His sacrifice. So I would pray that you would turn from that sin, that you would trust in Christ, that you would follow Him, that you would know that. And if you have done that, friends, the simple reminder for us is... For us to embrace, A, our our problem by faith, but then the solution by faith. How do we go on maintaining this secret? I don't think I'm blowing anyone's mind this morning saying, oh, I never knew that. (laughs) But what we need, though, is the reminder that this is true, and I don't know how else to help you apart from saying we must continue to look to God's Word to remind us of the real problem and the real solution. I was talking with a, a brother this week, Uh, up in uh, my office, who said that on the way here uh, to the church for this particular meeting, that he was listening to a podcast, and I forgot who it was that he was talking about. But I remember the, the point. He said they were talking about how to read your Bible in a way that helps you appreciate Christ. And, you know, that obviously, like, resonated with me. I'm always trying to help people understand how they can read their Bibles in a way that they appreciate Christ. And so the guys gave two points. The first one was, read the Bible looking for Jesus. What does it say about Jesus? And I'm thinking, check, know that, thank you. You That's really cool. I, I tell people that all the time. We should read not just looking for rules. We should read looking to see what it tells us about our relationship with him. Great point. The second thing, though, was something that I had not considered. And I'd like to propose it to you. When you read your Bible, not only look to see who Jesus is, but also read looking to know why you need him why you need Him. You ever read your Bible sometimes you just feel guilty? You're like, man, I don't do that. I don't do that. Oh, I fall so short there. Nope, nope, I fell there. And sometimes it feels like it is a deflating experience. Good, because now you know how much you need Him. (laughs) We should actually read embracing the fact that, you know what, we do fall short. He has fixed it. And so we see not only that Jesus meets needs, but we see how He meets those needs. So read then your scriptures, friends, not only looking for Jesus, but look for why you need him. You may read through like the Old Testament law, for example, and think, nope, that's not me. I didn't do that. I failed here. And then you can remind yourself, but in Christ, it's good. In Christ, all is okay. If we could only be more overwhelmed by our real problem than our perceived ones, it would be all the easier to continue to find that Satisfaction, that contentment, that peace, that joy in Christ. And so embrace your problem by faith. Embrace the solution by faith. Friends, we must realize that at the end of the day, no matter what we may think we have or don't have, what we do have is Christ.